0: But this show will continue to help you understand the things that affect your health while looking for unexpected discoveries along the way. It will also explore thought-provoking ideas and questions, like this one. Raising a toast. Sipping a mimosa at brunch. Having a glass of wine as you unwind after a rough day. There's nothing wrong with that. Or is there? It can be complicated if you're one of the millions of people who've had issues with alcohol. Maybe you tried dry January and found it harder than you expected. Perhaps you got sober or found yourself drinking more during the pandemic. Or maybe you don't drink at all and feel like it's socially awkward. Our guest today is Holly Whitaker, author of Quit Like a Woman, The Radical Choice Not to Drink in a Culture Obsessed with Alcohol. You might have seen Chrissy Teigen mention her book as an inspiration in her journey with sobriety. Holly, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Do you remember the first time you had a drink?
1: I do. Uh, I was, oh gosh, probably I was in the eighth grade and um, my uh, parents were out of town for the weekend and my sister was having a party and I had probably two or three drinks and then I I got really sick. Um, I, I actually write about this because I think it's in my book, I write about how hear these stories of people that talk about how the first time they tasted alcohol they knew they knew they had found an answer and i did not have that experience um to me it was a tool it was a thing that i wanted to be able to use because of what i believed it would afford me versus something that i felt um was a an escape tool um if that makes sense
0: Right, this whole kind of new section of society that you could participate in. That's right, that's right, yeah. When was it that you decided you wanted to quit drinking? Was there like a specific moment that you recall, or was it just something that kind of unfolded over time? Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
2: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows. From the Nespod Studios... Enjoy the show.
1: It really unfolded over time. I think there were so many moments, and I think this is a really common thing, which is we maybe have a bad weekend. Maybe, you know, we we say something stupid or do something stupid, or um, maybe we wake up hungover and we lose like a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, But there's so many things I think that end up happening. Maybe uh, give us this idea that uh, this might not be the best thing for us, but then we really quickly pave over that because alcohol is really sold to us as this gift, as this thing that we're supposed to be able to ingest. And so for me, I had that push and pull that I don't like this, or I'm going to cut back on my drinking, or I'm not going to drink during the weekdays, or I'm not going to drink on the weekends. I always had thoughts about wanting to cut back or to drink differently, and that would ebb and flow. But really around um, when I started, I guess like 31 or 32, I started to have experiences. I was drinking, I, I started to drink a lot more and I started to drink in a way that was terrifying. And so I had this unfolding experience of, I think coming to terms and uh, I run a company, Tempest and we're a recovery company and, and we call it the recovery journey because people move through something having no idea And then they start to move into this awareness where they're able to see little tiny bits that add up to a bigger picture. So I don't think anybody really ever just goes from drinking is so great to I'm going to quit. It's such a like unfolding thing.
0: Right. You said you were starting to drink to a level that was terrifying. What was, what was terrifying about it?
1: Well, I felt like I couldn't not drink. Um, I didn't know how to come home from work and not drink. I mean, that was a really big part of it was I didn't know how to transition from my workday into my evening without having wine. So that was one. Um, I drank uh, increasing amounts. And so I had such a high tolerance. I could you know, drink one or two bottles in an evening by myself. Um, I could drink before I went out with my friends. Um, I started to do things like that, like drinking and uh, by myself. So by the time I was around my friends, it wasn't as obvious um, that I was, uh, you know, that I didn't need as much. So it wouldn't make it obvious. I started to do um, really sneaky things, and I think um, for me, there there just was this turning point where I, I I had a really stressful job, and for me, it was I used to work over the weekends, and I just started to go through this. Um, cycle of coming home on a Friday and working late into a Friday night and drinking and then waking up on a Saturday morning and drinking to smooth it out and to like make the engine run. And I would, you know, navigate alcohol and pot and tobacco and coffee to kind of create this situation that kept me going. But I also think it's really important to, to caveat here that I also could, could go for a few days without drinking. Um, I took a period of time where I didn't drink for a couple of weeks in all of that. And I also, I didn't necessarily um, think about drinking all day, every day, but there was just this. So there was, I, I think it's, it's important to name that we think it's so black and white, but oftentimes it's so confusing because we can find things that will give us this like sense of proof. Oh, it's not that bad. Um, And then, you know, there's also things that are just staring us in our face that are like, this is going to kill you.
0: Right. I can imagine. I mean, I think that's a pretty common feeling. Like when people can, you know, quit for a couple of weeks, they would say to themselves, oh, I don't have a problem because I can take it or leave it anytime I want.
1: (laughs) Yes. But then we go back to using it, right? (laughs) Right.
0: Or everyone has that image in their mind of what an alcoholic looks like. And That's that's often that certainly does not fit everyone at all.
1: No, everyone is such, it's so interesting because now, you know, I've been for the past almost decade, you know, I'm privy to so many individuals' stories from letters or messages or just working with people directly. And no one has the same story. There's similarities, but everyone has these very unique experiences. And so it is, it's not a monolith.
0: Right. When you made that decision that you were going to stop and the decision was for good. Um, how did you go about doing that? And, and did that change over time?
1: I started to really consider it around the summer of 2012. I, I had a a specific experience in January, 2012, where I went away for a weekend to like a healing retreat And I just had that moment of awareness that I had to change something. And then uh, on Monday I came back to work and nothing changed. And that went on for a while. And then by that summer I was on vacation. And I just, I remember saying to one of my friends, if I don't stop drinking, when we get back uh, to San Francisco, um, you're gonna have to hold an intervention. And we kind of laughed, but I was very serious. And then it just like started to pile on and I started to get, I think a little bit more comfortable with the idea that I might have an issue with drinking um, and might have to quit. And then I had a very specific experience in September of 2012, where I just went through one of those binge cycles and I woke up from it. Uh, it was like a three day, um, you know, they'd call it a bender. And I woke up um, and just had a real like bottom moment where I, I woke up and my apartment was a mess and I had, you know, been consuming alcohol I was also severely bulimic. So I had, you know, f- lots of food containers in my apartment, lots of alcohol containers in my apartment. And I was supposed to go to work and it just stopped working in that moment. And so for me, that was really, I think the crux of it, which was, I hit, a I hit a wall where I finally was able to say like, I cannot go on like this and I have to do something about this um and then from there i think like something that's really important for people to understand is that it's not like the bottom you know it's not the bottom story like that's not necessarily it i like the bottom is the point where you just start telling the truth to yourself and so many people think that they have to lose so much in order to get the message but we actually don't have to go that far down it really is just the moment that you're willing to tell yourself the truth and i had that moment in september of 2012. And so it wasn't like I just entered rehab that day. It was just, it opened up a portal for me to start looking for ways to heal myself. And then that I, you know, went to my doctor who was not helpful. And then I started to read books and I started to explore and research and really start to, I started to compile um, my own path of recovery that was out of the traditional systems of recovery. So I didn't go to rehab Mm I didn't get sober going to 12 step meetings. I really just constructed my own patchwork of, of recovery.
0: What was it that actually worked for you in the long run?
1: You know, I think one of the most important things is that I did self-diagnose incorrectly um, with uh, borderline personality disorder and reading in black and white um, that if I were to keep drinking, that I would suffer um, severely from it um, was part of it. So I think like being able to see in, in black and white, if you keep drinking, this will exacerbate a mental health issue it was one big part of it. The other pieces of it, were I read books specifically by Alan Carr called the easy way to control alcohol. And what that book did was really deconstruct, um, this idea that alcohol is, um, that we're supposed to drink. And this idea that there's only alcoholics and then normal drinkers and no one in between. Um, Alan Carr's work uh, is really, really foundational in um, changing, uh, destroying cognitive dissonance that keeps so many people stuck uh, in in this pattern of wanting to quit and going back to it. So I read that book and it fundamentally changed my belief around alcohol. It taught me um, that it wasn't about like not being able to drink. It was about not having to do this anymore. It It was a release, an escape. Um, So that was huge. Uh, I started going to therapy um, and really took that seriously. Um, I started to just do small things in my life. Like I started to read positive affirmations and it sounds silly, but that was probably one of the most important things that I did was start to work with, you know, my negative thought patterns. Um, I picked up meditation and mindfulness practices. Uh, I started to journal. Um, I started to really seek joy in my life. Um, I started to I really just open up m- myself to the possibility that my life could look very different than it did. And I think the, the combination of all of these things, right? And, and therapy was just so exquisitely important, but so was my you know, reading books. And then also so was changing how I think you know, from, on a moment to moment basis all of these things added up and it took me about six months. The first time I quit it, I was sober for two months, didn't drink at all, didn't even miss it. And then I started drinking again. And that was the harder part of the recovery was once I had gotten some time and then drank again. And then I couldn't really get it back together again for about six months. And I I stopped drinking entirely in April of 2013. So coming up on um, eight years this year.
0: Wow, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you. And that's such a multifaceted approach. That's so that's so fascinating. It's not like you were doing just one thing, you know, going down one path. Well, I want to pivot a little bit from your personal story to some of the things that you've observed about this cultural obsession you see with alcohol. Can you share some examples of situations where you've seen that happen and Mm -hmm. What do you say now when you're in those situations yourself?
1: Well, I mean, it's kind of so, um, like we're so steeped in it. It's, it's hard to even like say that there's situations. It's, it's more like we've come to a point in history where we expect alcohol at almost every single thing that we do. We use it at peak moments. We use it in celebration. We use it in intimate moments. We use it to grieve. We use it to nurse our depression. We use it to cure our boredom. So it's, it's almost like it's penetrated almost every experience that we have. And so examples of this are, um, you know, baby showers. I just like a very stark example to me was that as I was in that age where I started to go to baby showers, there was an emphasis on making sure that they included a drink that the, the person we were there to celebrate couldn't drink. Um, and having it almost at like every single interaction I had experiences with my friends in San Francisco when I, before I started to stop drinking and we could not figure out what to do that didn't center around alcohol. And so it's also just this largely like our lives are centered around alcohol, but then there's also this second piece of it, which is, it's not even necessarily alcohol companies marketing to us. We, with our social media accounts. Market the consumption of alcohol as a way to make it through life um, to each other, and nowhere has this been more highlighted than on social media in the wake of COVID. And in those first few weeks, because I'm so like it's it's my work now. In those first few weeks, I, what I was doing was collecting all of the ways that everyone was telling us this is the time when we're in the middle of crisis to go and to start to use drugs to get through it. And you saw like on O Magazine, Padma Lakshmi was chugging tequila from the bottle to deal with COVID and Ina Garden, you know, early in the morning was making, you know, showing us how to make cocktails from home. And there was, you know, um, Molly Sims showed how she makes it through homeschooling and she was drinking Rose straight from the bottle. and. So you have, and, and those are just, you know, those are just celebrity. Like this was something that was just seeded throughout social media, which was, we are supposed to use alcohol to make it through something like this. And I work in healthcare and I was getting, you know, newsletters from, from healthcare companies that were reminding me to stock up on wine and wine or alcohol was essential. And there was features in the New York times about how to make it through and how to make, you know, your own happy hour on zoom and at home, there was just so much emphasis on right now, this time in our collective history, where we need to show up for ourselves and, you know, and each other and our kids and our parents, like, this is the time that we are, you know, being really urged to uh, use alcohol to make it through, as if alcohol is, is the, is the, is the health is the thing that is, is going to save us.
0: Right. And sometimes it's kind of, it's almost like it's, couched in a joking way, but it's like, this is the only thing we've got that can help us get through this moment.
1: That's right. That's
0: right. It's not like we're all going out to bars and hanging out in public places or going to happy hours after work in person. But when you find yourself now in situations where others put a lot of emphasis on drinking, how do you manage that? How do you get yourself through those?
1: Well, I think when I first got sober, it was a very different story than, you know, eight years later, but in those, in those first moments of it, I really, I mean, almost like exposure therapy. I almost, I made myself stick to my old rituals, um, in terms of social life. And so I was in plenty of situations where I was going out with my friends until four in the morning. Um, I was going out to dinners with my friends. And I think like, what I remember the most about them is like the weight of every single um, encounter, whether it was asking for um, the bill to be redistributed without charging me for alcohol because I hadn't had any and my whole table had, or declining a drink that a waiter gave me for free on the house, or a drink that one of my friends, you know, brought over to me, or fielding questions of why aren't you drinking? That doesn't make sense to me because it's far more, you know. There, there was no dry January back then. People just were supposed to drink. There was no like, uh, you, you were either pregnant on antibiotics um, or an alcoholic. You know, that was just it. Those are your three options if you didn't drink. And today I think we have a lot more awareness around it. But in those early days, what I really chose to do was to like use them as experiments. Like I really used all those interactions to figure out how I could become more embodied in myself and my choices, more boundaried. And that was such a, powerful decision. And now I I don't find myself in those, in those situations really. It's very rare that I find myself in a situation where I'm being pressured to drink or asked to drink. And I have no problem telling people I absolutely don't drink and I'm not interested in it. Um, But also, you know, my life and what I've, what I pay, what I have um, put emphasis on is totally different than, than it used to be. So most of my friends now are, are sober or there are people that don't have, uh, that don't put a ton of import on alcohol. And so it's, it's, um,
0: it's different. Yeah, yeah. That makes a difference. I can imagine. And to your point, I mean, there is more awareness, you know, there's a whole dry January trend. There's, you know, companies that sell mocktails um, yeah. you know, th- these, you know, drinks that don't have any alcohol in them for those kinds of situations. So it is, it is starting to change a little bit maybe. You've also written about what you think is and isn't helpful for women who want to stop drinking. Do you see differences in this process for women or do the same tips that you follow, for example, also work for men?
1: The same tips that I that I follow absolutely work for men. I think where the nuance comes in is that historically, you know, our our recovery frameworks are really built out of patriarchal religious um, structures. AA, right, is the original, like, large-scale recovery option, which was built on um, an evangelical uh, Christian framework, and therefore alluded to that part of what one needs in order to get sober is really, like, a, a spiritual path, and so that's really frameworked into the way we conceptualize recovery, we assume people that are that need to recover are spiritually bankrupt um, and need to follow the well-worn paths that we've laid out of how one achieves, you know, connection and spirituality. And so those frameworks were built to bake, break down male privilege. And so oftentimes in recovery frameworks, you hear, you know, this sentiment that, um, we, we need to um, check our egos. We need to find humility. We need to be in service. We need to apologize to other people that we've hurt. Um, we need to get small. Um, we need to you know, give it over to God. Um, you know, we need to you know, do any number of things. And oftentimes when you start to really look at what traditional frameworks are suggesting as the path to healing, are really um, frameworks that are meant to break down um, male privilege, which may be like oversized ego or lack of humility or belief that one is God or someone who has, you know, created great harm or somebody that's power hungry. Um, That may be why someone is drinking and therefore that framework might make perfect sense. And that, that could be, you know, gender agnostic. But typically, if you're looking at like a female or someone else at the intersection of an identity that's historically, you know, from a historically oppressed group, you're not looking at people that have too big of an ego, that uh, aren't humble, that um, are sick from, from too much power, um, are sick from moving through the world like it, they own it. You know, it's you have the opposite You have people that are, are drinking probably because they feel extremely powerless um, because they don't have because they're disenfranchised Um, because they don't have access um, because they, you know, already are cratered. Um, And so when, when I, when I talk about in quit like a moment, I talk about really like recovery frameworks and what, what we need to do is center center recovery, essentially on the idea that people need to be built up and, and also that people need to start to learn self-trust and these things are things that can be applied to really anybody right the idea that one needs to be able to trust oneself the the idea that one needs to be able to cultivate a sense of internal power that's not relying on external power structures and and so on and so forth and so w- what i've put forth um you know which is the culmination of a lot of other people's work right i i i really you know my work is a recipe of a lot of existing frameworks but the idea is anybody can pick this up Um, Typically, when we build things around those that are at the margins, when we center on the experiences of those at the margins, we end up creating far more
0: equitable structures. Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
2: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod Studios. Enjoy the show.
0: Right. Um is there much research on gender differences in quitting alcohol about what works?
1: There's not much research on quitting alcohol period. I mean that's hmm. it. Interesting. Yeah, there's not. I mean, typically what you see in terms of addiction, this is part of why I started to do the work that I was doing was there's this huge, you know, budget for the, the war on drugs there's this there's a huge amount of resource that goes to the criminalization of drug use and the prosecution of drug use um, and then you have uh, so little going to preventative services or any sort of research and so and then you have to imagine from that small pool what is being done in terms of gender differences or race differences and that is starting to change but it's extremely underfunded it's just it's not a, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, a huge focus, but yes, I mean, there is some basic stats are that the, the largest growing populations of, of, of those with alcohol use disorder um, are women uh, over the age of 45 um, that are black. And so there is at least some sort of research around where you're seeing um, increases, but there's not really any research that is really pulling apart what specific frameworks work for what genders.
0: Right. I don't have the data in front of me, but I would imagine that there are thousands of women who have used a program like AA and have been able to quit successfully. Absolutely. Did you give AA a try and you discovered that it wasn't for you? I'm curious how you came to the, to the, or formed your, your um, thoughts around, you know, the, sort of the nature of it being much more patriarchal oriented towards men.
1: Yeah, I think my criticism is not like, I think one of the things that I found that was really hard to navigate in early recovery was this idea that if I didn't use AA, then my recovery was not valid. And that is still like a very large theme in our world. We believe Mm -hmm. that AA is the one way. It's like we made a cancer drug in 1935 and decided this one cancer drug is the cancer drug that every person that has cancer from (laughs) here on out is going to use. If you don't use it, you don't want to get rid of your cancer. And so we have really stuck with that. And so part of my criticism about it is that we, like whenever whenever we talk about recovery, like A A is part of the conversation because we have this like collectively held belief that this is the one way and it's not the one way. And so I think the first thing I wanna assert is just like calling attention to that. This question comes up on every interview I do because for the most part, it's almost as if any choice um, that is an AA as a choice against AA or is stating something that AA hasn't worked for X, Y, or Z. Um, and so my, I did try AA. I had I tried it six months after I had started doing my own research and building my own program. And what I found was in going to AA meetings, the things that really made my recovery strong, which were starting to get this sense of I can trust myself. It's safe to trust myself. I found that the community I was in and the conversations that I was having in that community were actively working against this sense of self-trust, which I, which was fundamental to my healing. And so you're exactly right. Plenty of people use AA and people like from all over the world have totally different experiences of it based upon specifically the, the fellowships that they find themselves in. Right. Based yeah. Upon, Cause there's
0: thousand, there's thousands right. of that's AA right. chapters and that's yeah.
1: right. Mm -hmm. Or based upon who the person is, maybe you can come into it and make it work for you and not be, and not find some of the dogmatic pieces like running counter to what you believe. Maybe you are so good at being able to separate out other people's truths from yours, but there's as many experiences as there are people. And so the way that I like to look at it is AA is absolutely one framework, but there's also smart recovery. There's also MAT. There's also... Um, CBI. There's also, you know, rational recovery. There's mindfulness recovery. There's there's so many different combinations of recovery. There's harm reduction. There's moderation management. There's there's so many number of things that are available to us. But we keep on coming back to this idea that if you do something else, it means X, Y, or Z. But AA. I'm not specifically critical of AA. What I'm mostly critical of is that we as a society whether we're in recovery or not can't get past the idea that that AA is the basis of all good recovery and and the ideas born in that organization are what we use to construct our ideas of what makes good and bad recovery Um, and so I think it's far more about what are the systems of recovery that we're creating how do we make them accessible Um, and differentiated so that anybody who needs recovery can access them. And then how do we update them to, you know, the code of recovery to what people today in this society, in this time
0: need? We mentioned earlier that uh, Chrissy Teigen has mentioned your book in her social media posts about getting sober. Um, I'm curious, uh, first of all, what that's been like for you, but also what are the kinds of responses that you've heard from other women who have um, given your method a try.
1: Yeah, I mean, what that's been like was uh, like, obviously it brought a lot of the, what was so interesting about the way she talked about recovery um, was she didn't talk about recovery. She said, I'm sober and it's made my life better. And that's a very different story that than you typically hear when celebrities or anybody yet celebrities, let's say, come out and say that they've stopped drinking um, it's usually apologetic. It's shamefilled. It's, you know, it's like, I'm doing this thing. I'm a broken person, or I'm doing this thing. I'm, and, and which is all fine. But in this case, what she did was she really normalized this idea of like, she didn't come out and say, I'm an alcoholic. I'm taking it. one. you know, she basically said, I am um, stopped drinking. And um, it was a good choice for me. And, you know, I, it's, it's, it's upside. And so I think that that was the significant change, which she, Like a perfect example of this is one of my accountant that I've been working with for years wrote me and said, they didn't understand what Chrissy Teigen was reading my book because Chrissy Teigen wasn't an alcoholic. And then it helps them to understand in that moment, oh, this is something that we can all look at. When we turn 21, we should be, we should be met with, you know, information around what alcohol can do to us and the choices we make, but we're not, we're just like basically thrown out there and told go out, make this work. If you can't make it work, then you're probably sick. Um, And so I think what Chrissy Teigen did was allow for us to expand our collective idea about what, what alcohol is and the role it plays in our lives and the decisions that we can make around it without having to qualify ourselves with, you know, as being alcoholics.
0: Right. On the flip side of that, I mean, there are lots of women and men too, I suppose, who just enjoy an occasional drink and have no particular issues with it.
1: It is about being able to make decisions for ourselves with the full set of information. It is not to say people that enjoy one or two are, you know, like need to be worried. It is essentially that the exact reason so many of us end up addicted to it is because we believe that there's just some people out there that don't need to worry about it. And we don't know which ones versus like with cigarettes again, because it's such an easy example. You know what you're doing if you're smoking, you know, the toxicity, you know, the cancer risks, you know, the addiction risks. We don't have that with alcohol. We don't have that like simple set of information that, okay, this is a, a toxic substance that you're going to ingest. And here's what, you know, could happen to you. And also like, here's how to manage it. And so it's just being able to understand what we're like, it's, a, it's really just about informed consent, which we have with every other drug. And so this is only about a matter of, of ensuring that people that do choose to consume, do it with a full set of information, like we do anything else.
0: Right. Understanding everything that it can do before you start to use it.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Some people say that women's alcohol use gets scrutinized in a way that doesn't happen for men. Uh, What is, what is your take on that? You mentioned at the top, even like all, you know, during the pandemic, it was, you know, female celebrities who were, you know, on magazines, chugging tequila from the bottle and that kind of stuff, which is, I found that interesting. Yeah.
1: And I would say, this is what I would say. Actually, women get scrutinized for their drug use more than men do. That's one piece that I want to be really clear about is yes, that is exactly right. Women are scrutinized for their alcohol use far more than men are. But in this case, what we're talking about is not necessarily scrutinizing women for you know, promoting alcohol and not scrutinizing men. And in, in this way, there is a very specific thing that is happening within wellness culture and predominantly within, you know, within, within, um, within female populations where we've become marketers of alcohol to each other and selling it to each other. Like it's gonna fix everything. And so this is less about scrutinizing women. Men are not walking around and wearing, you know, um, rosé all day t-shirts, you know, like they're not driving this market. Women are. And so in that case, it's far more about like us, what we owe to each other and what we post on our social media feeds or in the conversations we have with each
0: other. So for someone who's listening to, you share your experience, talk about alcohol use and who may be starting to have that moment of, you know, wondering about their own alcohol use, what, what now, what is a, what is a next step that that person could take?
1: What I love so much about this question is that I think part of the hard part of being in the position of starting to have that initial awareness around it is that we also want to not have it? <laughs> we also are confused yeah. about it. One of the things that I remember so clearly um, that I now can see, you know, from hindsight, was I remember one of my friends um, talking about his friend who was an alcoholic, and I remember like my reaction to him talking about that friend. There were there we don't have we don't lean in or get prickles or like prickles, pricks of like uh, knowing around things that, that are not important for us to pay attention to. And so what I mean by that is if you're listening to this and you're affected by it, like there, if there's a like, huh, or a, it feels a little familiar or it feels a little close, like that is your intelligence telling you to go toward it. And that's the, the thing I will say the most, like that is the most important part of the process is leaning into those things that stand out to you and just like the path unfolds and that's just it the second that and this is universal the second that anybody is willing to look at something and have a conversation about it and explore it is the moment the whole path unfolds and the resources start to like swim at you it's just the way we work and so I think the best things you can do honestly are your own research is, is to allow yourself to go on the web and ask the questions and read the articles is to pick up a book, um, Annie Grace's This Naked Mind, my book, Quit Like a Woman, uh, Laura McCowans, um, We Are the Luckiest, Blackout by Sarah Heepola, um, The Biology of Desire by Mark Lewis. like there's so many wonderful pieces of literature out there that are designed to help us to start to make sense. And so reading and research is such an important part. And then it's also just about the doing. So there's plenty of online groups, um, Zoom calls. You can find a therapist and start there. The, it doesn't matter. It's just that you, you take one step and then you take the next step and then you take the next step. Um, and that really is, it's, it's how the thing unfolds.
0: Well, Holly Whitaker, um, thank you so much for talking with us today and and sharing your story. story, And we wish you all the best um, going forward.
1: Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. What a wonderful interview. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you. This will conclude the episode.